Good morning. I do want to express my appreciation for your coming out this morning. And we are thankful that uh, the weather forecast was not as severe as they had predicted. And we're glad that you're here this morning. I do want to send greetings from Texas Christian Church to you. And as many of you know, we are in the midst of a restoration project. Um, some of you may have heard that the church has closed. That is incorrect. About a year ago, we closed the church building for repairs to the foundation. Uh, but the church is alive and well, and uh, I'd like to greet all of you from the Texas Christian Church. Uh, there is one thing I'd like to add very briefly in conjunction with the restoring of the foundation, I am working on a history of Texas Christian Church, and I know that a number of you have roots there, or perhaps your family has, and uh, I am very interested to hear the stories of the people that have at one time been a part of Texas Christian Church. So if you or family members uh, are have that history with the Texas Church, I would love to hear from you. Uh, maybe after the service if we could meet and uh, I want to include as much of the people that made up our church through the years. And so if you could help me out with that, I'd appreciate it. I also bring greetings from the Clinton Area Ministerial Association, also known as CAMA. Many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with this organization, but there may be a few who are wondering what we're all about. CAMA is a collection of churches in the Clinton area coming together to reach our community for Jesus Christ. We do this through corporate worship. Twice a year we have community-wide services on Good Friday and at Thanksgiving. We also offer community assistance for those who are in need. And we seek to build a cooperative spirit between those of like faith. While we acknowledge our differences in preferences and practices, we affirm our agreement that there is one God eternally existing in three persons, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the only way to salvation, and that the Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God, to which all God's people can say, Amen. Now this morning I would like to address the topic, what our community needs now. This is not a new topic. Many different groups are discussing the needs and the possible solutions for the Clinton area. Some focus on economic improvements, others on issues of crime and safety. But I believe we can narrow it down to three words. Community requires unity. In fact, you cannot even spell community without unity. What our community needs now is unity. And by that I am not speaking about racial unity or cultural unity or political unity, as important as those may be. We as Christians believe that the solution to the problems of society is Jesus Christ. We can outlaw all the vices 
including racism and bigotry, but it will not change society. We can even replace the politicians. We can follow the advice of one bumper sticker I saw that says, vote them all out. And that is not going to meet the real need. As Warren Wiersbe writes, you don't change the problems just by changing the people in office. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And until the heart is changed by grace, society will not change at all. What our community needs is the saving, transforming grace of Jesus Christ. And that will only happen through us. You see, God did not commission angels to reach the world. He does not write John 3.16 in the clouds. He commissioned his followers to go into all the world and preach the gospel, to make disciples of all nations, and that's us. That's our job. The problem with this plan, though, is that more often than not, we're not on the same page. As somebody once put it, isn't it weird that the mighty army of the children of God, clothed in righteousness, shielded with faith, girded with truth, shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, spend the vast majority of their time either shining their armor or fighting one another. I think too often times we Christians resemble the castaway who was rescued from his deserted island after several years. The captain of the rescuing boat came ashore, and he was interested to see how this man had survived all alone for this extended period of time. He was surprised to see that just off of the shore, there were three buildings constructed. And he asked the man, wow, this is impressive. What is this building in the middle? And the man said, that's my home. That, that is where I've lived these, these past several years. He said, well, that's, that's wonderful. How about that building on the left? And the castaway said, that's my church. Every Sunday morning I go and I worship God. And the captain was just impressed, really flabbergasted at what this man had done. And he said, wow, that's amazing. What's that church, the building on the right? And he said, that's a church I used to go to. I realize that's a silly story, but there's a lot of truth behind that, isn't there? Too often, Christians can't get along with one another, and it does not matter what size the church is. Folks, this is no laughing matter. As we're going to see this morning, there's too much at stake to allow this condition to continue in the body of Christ. So what I'd like to do this morning is to focus on that third objective of Kama that I mentioned earlier, building a cooperative spirit between those of like faith. What our community needs now is unity, and that unity begins with the house of God. Now, I doubt that many would argue the importance of unity within the body of Christ, but what do we mean by unity? And I'd like to begin with what unity is not. There's a couple of words that sound like unity, and oftentimes we mistake them for unity. First of all, unity is not 
uniformity. Uniformity insists that all the members look and act alike. The anthem of uniformity sounds like this. Believe as I believe, no more, no less, that I am right and no one else confess. Feel as I feel, think only as I think, eat what I eat and drink but what I drink. Look as I look, do always as I do, then and only then I'll fellowship with you. That is uniformity. But that is not unity. As John Stott points out, although there is only one body, one faith, and one family, this unity is not to be misconstrued as a lifeless or colorless uniformity. We are not to imagine that every Christian is an exact replica of every other as if we had all been mass-produced in some celestial factory. On the contrary, unity of the church, far from being boringly monotonous, is exciting in its diversity. And yet we are sometimes threatened by such diversity. We tend to shun anything different for fear of the unknown. Diversity means that I must accept and allow people who are different than me. They may not have the same skin color or hairstyle or manner of dress. We may look at them and say, how can they call themselves Christian? Don't worry, they're thinking the same thing about you. See, the body of Christ, his church, it's not to be marked by uniformity. We don't all have to look the same and dress the same and act the same to be united. Nor does unity mean unanimity. Unanimity means that we all think alike and that we must all agree on everything. I'm sure you've heard of the, the slogan of the Christian church, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. Now, by essentials, we mean matters of clearly spelled out doctrine as it appears in the scripture. And on these matters, we must agree. And I think we do a pretty good job of that. What I see missing in many of our churches are the last two. How are we doing on the liberty we allow in the non-essentials? How are we doing on the charity regarding all of these things? Do we make matters of taste into matters of theology? Where what I don't like is evil, and not only is it bad for me, but it's also bad for you. I remember growing up at a time where taste theology was very rampant. And in my era, it had a lot to do with style of music. And I knew a lot of older Christians, and now I'm one of those. But at the time, older Christians would look at my style of music and say, that music's of the devil. I remember having a speaker at my Bible college stand before the student body and say, syncopation comes from Satan. And you should take... Any hymn out of the hymnal that has syncopation in it, give me a break. You cannot sit down and write music that is evil. 
Now, there's a lot of music out there that I think isn't very good, but that's a matter of taste. For me to go to somebody and say, that music you're listening to, the style of music, is somehow evil. I am taking my taste and making a theology out of it. You say, oh, I'm sure that doesn't happen today. Do you know what splits churches? The number one splitter of churches today? Style of worship. Because Christians cannot get together enough to even worship our God. Instead, we split and we go our separate ways. And what does that say to the world? What does the community think when Christians can't get along? I'm sure that they look at us and say, oh, you claim to love us, you don't even love each other. And our credibility is gone. Unity is not unanimity. Chuck Swindoll writes, as long as our knowledge is imperfect and our preferences vary and opinions differ, let's leave a lot of rooms in areas that don't really matter. Diversity and variety provide the body with a beautiful blend of balance, but a squint-eyed, severe spirit is a killer, strangling its victims with a noose of caustic criticism. Now we've seen what unity is not. (laughs) Let's consider what unity is. If you have your Bibles this morning, turn to Psalm 133. Don't flip your pages too fast, you'll miss it. (laughs) Psalm 133 consists of just three verses, but there's a wealth of truth in these words. As you get there, you may see the title up above verse 1. If you have a King James Version, it will say a song of degrees. Some of your newer translations may say a song of ascents. Now, I originally thought that referred to the music, that the the melody just kept getting higher and higher, kind of like some of the great old hymns we have in our hymnal. One of my favorite hymns is Wonderful Grace of Jesus. I love the message and I love the music. Unless I'm trying to lead it and you get to the end. It just keeps going up and up and up. And something I've noticed is the older I get, I can't get up there anymore. On Sunday evenings in our worship services, we allow our folks to choose their favorite songs. And I think some sadistic people choose that hymn specifically because they try to see me stretch to get those notes. But that's not what this means by a song of ascents. I think the New Living Translation captures the meaning very well. It says it's a song for pilgrims ascending to Jerusalem. See, several times a year, the Israelites would all go to the temple. And I don't know if you know this about the geography of Israel, but Jerusalem sits up very high. So whether you're coming from the north, south, east, or west, you're going up to Jerusalem just by elevation. And there are a number of these psalms from number 120 to 134 that are called songs of ascents. They are the songs they would sing as they go up to the temple to worship. I think this might have been an ancient version of the chorus I used to sing growing up. We are one in the spirit. 
We are one in the Lord. Remember that? And in this very brief psalm, we learn a lot about unity. The first truth comes from verse 1. Unity is inviting. Notice what the verse says. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. That in and of itself speaks a great deal of unity. How good, how pleasant it is. But what do we mean by unity? In the original language, and actually for this you go to the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. The same word is used here as is used in Acts 2.1 when it says that the disciples were all together and in one accord. We're not talking about a Honda there. They were all together. In Romans 15.6, the same term is used. It's translated with one heart. The Greek word there is actually a combination of two words with one And the other is passion or intensity. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together with one heart, with one passion, with one intensity. There is a focus with unity. It doesn't mean that we're all identical. It does mean that we are intensely focused on our mission. As Christians, we are to be a people with one overriding passion, a purpose that transcends personal feelings, agendas, and preferences. You know, another word for this is fellowship. Now, there's a word we've got down in the modern Christian church today, at least the way we understand the word. What is fellowship? Well, it's casual socializing, having conversation, usually with coffee and donuts, right? Fellowship always has an implication of food. You stay after for fellowship usually means wait for refreshments. In my home church growing up back in Ohio, we had a phrase, where two or three are gathered together in my name, somebody will bring dessert. But I think we have cheapened the idea of fellowship in that way. Real fellowship is much more. It is experiencing life together. It includes unselfish loving, sharing, serving, giving, and comforting one another. And the key to all of this is when Christians are united in this way, When we come together with one heart and we have one overriding passion and purpose, unbelievers are attracted to the Savior. People on the outside say how good and pleasant that is. And we will draw people We don't have to have state-of-the-art entertainment to entice people into our doors. They're going to feel invited and they're going to want to be a part of us. But the opposite is also tragically true. Paul Bilheimer may very well be right when he says, The continuous 
and widespread fragmentation of the church has been the scandal of the ages. It has been Satan's master strategy. The sin of disunity probably has caused more souls to be lost than all the other sins combined. Did you catch that? The sin of disunity? That's what it is. Another author writes, Unity among the people of God is always fragrant, and it makes them appealing to unbelievers, but the odor of disunity will drive them away. So I ask you this morning, how do we smell? How do we smell as a church, as churches within the community? What fragrance are we giving off to those on the outside? This leads to a second truth. Unity is indicative. By that I mean unity indicates who we are. Jesus told his disciples in John 13, 35, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have all your doctrines straight. Is that what it says? All men will know that you are my disciples based on your long list of moral rules. Is that what it says? It says, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Christ didn't call us to uniformity. He doesn't call us to unanimity. He calls us to unity. And unity, first and foremost, is love for each other. It's looking somebody square in the eye and saying, even though we don't look alike, we don't dress alike, we may not talk alike, we may not think alike, but I love you with the love of God. And that is more important. Psalm 133, verse 2 states, It, meaning unity, is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. And I'm sure many of you are sitting there thinking, what on earth is he talking about? We need to remember what the anointing with oil meant to the ancient Israelites. There were two classes of people that were anointed with oil back then, kings and priests. And it was almost a, an oath of office, you might say, almost an inauguration. It was a way to indicate that this was God's chosen person. When God chose a king, they anointed his head with oil. I know some preachers have gotten real imaginative, saying, oh, this is a sign of the Holy Spirit on their life. No, it wasn't. It was simply a way of indicating this is God's choice. And thankfully, we don't install preachers today with dumping oil over their heads. At least I'm glad for that. <clears throat> but understand what it meant then in order to apply what it means today. The oil 
was indicative of what that person was to be. And unity indicates who we are in Jesus Christ. It tells the world we are for real. We are not guilty of false advertising as a church. When people look at a body of believers who are united, loving one another in honest Christian fellowship, they say that is the real church. And folks, people in Clinton, Illinois are looking for reality. They are looking for Christians who are real. And this indicates who we are. Are. And I want you to notice the verse that I mentioned earlier from John 13, where Jesus says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love. Who does he say that love is directed to? One another. Before we are to love the world, we are to love each other. Because as John would write in his first letter, how can you claim to love the world if you can't love your own brother? You can't even claim to love God if you don't love your own brother. It has to start within, in-house. Eugene Peterson, you may know him as the author of the paraphrase called The Message, wrote an excellent book on this collection of Psalms, 120 to 134. The book is entitled A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And regarding this particular psalm, he writes, The psalm puts into song what is said and demonstrated throughout Scripture and church. Community is essential. Scripture knows nothing of the solitary Christian. People of faith were always members of a community. Creation itself was not complete until there was a community, Adam needing Eve before humanity was whole. God never works with individuals in isolation, but always with people in community. We are a family in Christ. When we become Christians, we are among brothers and sisters in faith. No Christian is an only child. Think about it. No Christian is an only child. I think sometimes we need to be reminded of that fact. No church has a monopoly on God's grace and truth. We are a family, God's family, and we're called to act like it. Well, how do we do this? Going back to Peterson's writing, Christians, Christians make this explicit in their act of worship each week by gathering as a community. Other people are, avoid, are unavoidably present. As we come to declare our love for God, we must face the unlovely and lovely fellow sinners whom God loves and whom we are commanded to love. This must not be treated as something to be put up with. One of the inconvenient necessities of faith in the way that paying taxes is an inconvenient consequence of living in a free nation. It is not only necessary, it is desirable that our faith have a social dimension, a human relationship. 
And when we come together, united in our faith, united in heart and in purpose, we display to the world that we are truly Christ followers. You see, unity is inviting and unity is indicative. Thirdly, unity is invigorating. Psalm 133 verse 3 states, It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Once again, we have to get back into the original context to gain a correct understanding of this verse. He's still talking about unity. That first word, it, refers to the unity in verse 1. It is as if the dew of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon was the highest mountain in Israel. And due to its great altitude, it was known for heavy dew or even, dare I say it this morning, snow. On the other hand, Mount Zion, which is where Jerusalem sat, was known for its very dry weather. And the psalmist here is saying how refreshing it would be if we could get some of that dew and maybe even some of that snow off of Mount Hermon to come and refresh Mount Zion. And that's what unity does in the family of God. Paul writes in Romans 15, verses 5 through 7, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and one mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want you to notice the very next verse. Right after he's talking about coming together in unity with one heart to glorify our Father, he says, accept one another. Just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Notice that God brings encouragement. He brings endurance as well as a spirit of unity among ourselves. He does not want our Christian experience to be dry and monotonous. He wants us to experience abundant life. Life that is refreshing. Life that is invigorating. Now, I'm not suggesting this is easy. Living together in the way that evokes the glad song of Psalm 133 is one of the great and difficult tasks before us. Nothing requires more attention and energy. It is easier to do almost anything else. It's far easier to deal with people as problems to be solved rather than to have anything to do with them in a sense of community. Yet, Christians are a community of people who are visibly together at worship and who remain in relationship throughout the week in witness and in service. You see, such unity requires a selfless, sacrificial commitment to one another as well as to God. And I'd like to illustrate this this morning by using one of your own preachers from the past. Harry B. Wheaton came to Clinton to pastor First Christian Church in 1928. At that time, congregation was large, 
And he had his hands full with his duties here. But he made time to reach out beyond the four walls of this church. In addition to serving as president of the Clinton Ministerial Association, he also ministered personally to some of the smaller churches in the area. I found out about this as I was working on our church history. You see, in 1930, just two years after he arrived here, our own Texas Christian church had fallen into disorganization and despair. Harry went in and led a week-long revival at the Texas church. Brought in people from the community, got them inspired, got them excited again. Brought them together in unity. Established leadership, appointed some deacons and some elders. And he followed up on some Sunday afternoons. He would go out, after preaching here, he would go out 2 o'clock in the afternoon on Sunday and have a preaching service to keep the momentum going. And I would suggest that his efforts saved Texas Christian Church from shutting their doors. Because shortly thereafter, God raised up a preacher who came in and kept that fire burning. I always thought that was a tremendous act on his part. Isn't that amazing that somebody would go from their own church to another church, dare I say a rival church, isn't that how we often think of it? And he didn't go there and say, hey, folks, why don't you come to First Christian if you want to come to a real church? He didn't do that. He established the people there, got them built up so that they would continue. But you know what I found out? As I dug around and I found a clipping from the newspaper announcing that revival at Texas, it announced that the following week he was going to Hallsville to do the same thing. They were getting ready to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the old Union Church, which was the forefather of the Hallsville Church there. And they were similarly discouraged and, and had uh, fallen on hard times. So he went out there and he reestablished that church. And you know, when they gathered to meet for their centennial celebration, they had 150 people. He did the same thing in Lane. I believe he did the same thing in Wapella selflessly taking his time and his energy that he could have been focusing on right here, and I'm sure there was plenty of work to do, but he took his time to reach out beyond the walls of this church to sister churches in the area, not to bring people into himself. He wasn't trying to gather more people under his congregation. He was reaching beyond the walls and demonstrating what I believe Psalm 133 is all about. And that's the mission of Kama as well, to build a cooperative spirit between those of like faith. I want to conclude this morning with the prayer that Jesus prayed on his last night before his death. How many of you have seen that commercial where the guy's sitting at a, a conference table at work and somebody walks in with a little note and he opens it up and it says, your heart attack will be tomorrow. You seen that commercial? What would you do if you got a note that said, your life will end in 24 hours? What would we do? Jesus knew. And you know what he did? 
he prayed. And you might be surprised what he prayed about. John 17. After praying for his immediate disciples, he says in verse 20, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me that they may be as one even as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Did you catch the repeated emphasis on unity from our own Lord's words? Did you hear the connection between our oneness and our witness? What the community needs now, what the Clinton area needs now is unity, unity within the body of Christ. We need to reach out to one another with the love God has given us so that we can reach out to the world in the name of Jesus. This, this morning I was given a copy of the Christian Standard. And as God often works, <laughs> there's no such thing as a coincidence, but this particular issue has a lot to do with unity. And I read something in there I wanted to share with you this morning. We live in a degenerating culture desperate for the salt, light, and redemption that only the church can offer. In a sea of drowning seekers, we can't waste time arguing about the size of our boat or the color of our life preserver. Let's work together to reconcile people to God. Amen? You see, Jesus prayed that we may all be one, that the world may all be one to him. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, it is always a privilege to share your truth, to share your love and your grace. I pray that the work of your Holy Spirit would begin even now, bringing our hearts and our minds together, that we may be one, even as you and the Father are one that the world may be one to you. Lord Jesus, we pray this in your holy and blessed name. Amen. Amen. Scott, thank